Hello, and welcome to Systematically. I'm John Heaps. I'm talking to you from my walk-in closet in Austin, Texas. I'm here with Ryan Hemmer. Good morning, Ryan. Hey, John. How you doing? I'm good. And I'm here with Robin Beret. Hey, Robin. Hello. And uh, the last two episodes you listened to, if you listened to our last two episodes, hey, if you didn't listen to our last two episodes, you should go check them out. They're good. Uh, but we recorded those earlier in the summer, as I'll have mentioned. And um, this is our first episode sort of back recording in a regular way uh, here in the fall. And it's nice. I'm looking forward to spending my Saturday mornings with, with Ryan and Robin. Season two. Season two. Yeah, not, not wrong. Um, or three, depending on how you work on it. I don't know. At some point I need to go back and like, I, iTunes sends me emails every once in a while being like, we have new ways of numbering and categorizing your podcast. And I'm like, that would be a thing I would do if I had time or, uh, was getting paid or something. But, um, however, uh, there's a number of you out there who've been helping us cover our ongoing, uh, hosting costs and, uh, other expenses for running the podcast through patreon and we love you you are the best you're wonderful people who help us uh make the show go and make it happen and make it feasible uh for us uh amateurs so uh, if you're interested in being one of those people that we love who helps us uh make the show run and go and pays for like soundcloud hosting and stuff you can go to patreon.com systematically and that's patreon.com systematically and uh, you can sign up to donate like as little as a dollar a month and it all helps. It, it, mm-hmm. it all, uh, it's all a great benefit to us. Also, it turns, also- turns out oh. the Beatles were wrong when they said, can't buy me love because yes, like no. $2 on Patreon and like our hearts will explode. That's right. <laughs> That's right. Like, like in the Grinch, just boom, 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 bang, full of love. Um, my daughter started watching the Grinch. Uh, it's become one of the movies she watches on repeat now. Uh, Jim Carrey or Benedict Cumberbatch? Benedict Cumberbatch. Uh, same, which, same yeah. in our house. I honestly, it's fine. I like it. At least it's they, not. Tr- they they humanize him a little bit. Yeah, he's he's not uh he's not awful from the beginning. No, no, it's okay. What's wrong with the original cartoon? Isn't that is that Vincent Price doing the voice on that? I think so. I mean, yeah, the main problem with it is that it's twenty minutes long. And <laughs> I, I I really need more time than that. No, that's to, right. You know, I can stuff. like I can like unload and reload the dishwasher in that time, but that's uh-huh. not enough. That's not going to do. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. Anyway, now I've totally lost my train of thought. Anyway, uh, we're gonna we're gonna talk about uh, divine agency and divine freedom, uh, and methods in metaphysics for talking about that. We're gonna get neo-scholastic, y'all. First, uh, Robin had an idea for frivolity that we liked. So, Robin, what, what did you want to, like, BS about this morning? Well, well, I was thinking about, like, there's a thing called Twitter, right? <laughs> so you've been told, yeah. I've been told because when I read news articles now, sometimes they actually, like, will just, like, plug in, like, what so-and-so said on Twitter. Um, which is a whole other phenomenon that's interesting. Oh, so you mean, like, the president of the United States of America? For example, for for example, just a, for instance, to, if you wanted to give inaccurate weather reports, you could use this thing called Twitter. Um, you need a sharpie and a camera, but yeah. <laughs> but but super that's easy. such a. By the time this show posts, that joke is going to be so dated, and people are going to be like, "What?" But they'll need to be reminded because that's it's true. 
I don't know. I like stupid. I hope it'll Your be reminder that we'll, but it's like already the saga that won't end. Oh, it's true. It is yeah, time is a flat circle. It's true. Anyways, but we don't do political commentary on this show. But there's this thing Twitter, right? And I've been told that people have like argue like theological and philosophical arguments and all this sort of stuff on Twitter. Um which seems okay, except like Twitter doesn't provide beer, right? So I mean, like, <laughs> this is this is what's keeping you off Twitter. <laughs> what's the point of arguing with someone if you're not drinking, uh-huh. and like you can't then like, and they're not paying for at least some of them, you know? Yeah. Uh, I guess you could drink and drunk tweeting's a thing. I bet. Anyway. No, I yeah no. Is, I'm sure. Post- I'm sure every tweet is posted stone cold sober. <laughs> Yeah. I mean, that's what I believe about this world. I mean, if people are having philosophical debates, they're going to be stone cold sober. I know. I know. <laughs> I'm, I'm going to share a secret with our, our listenership, which is um, if Ryan Hemmer is ever tweeting, he has been drinking. <laughs> Am I wrong? I mean, no. <laughs> <laughs> it's more about the like the concentration of content production like yeah if i'm if i send out four tweets in an hour like it's definitely friday night yeah if ryan is if ryan is a tweeting there are martinis involved or something (laughs) (laughs) but it got me thinking that like certain authors seem a lot more like if you're going to argue or quote or whatever certain authors seem a lot more like appropriate for twitter than others you know amenable amenable exactly so it's like are you going to quote james joyce on twitter well where do you stop like (laughs) you just start with like a word and then you just stop when you get to 200 and 280 characters did i get that right that is the uh, yeah that's the current cap yeah on a tweet a tweet so um like where do you stop right whereas other like like aesop right like moral of the story one sentence bam you could even like spice it up one sentence for the moral and one for like imagine like that it was like a bee and a bear and like a bee's nest done you know clean (laughs) crisp got the point across so i was just thinking that everyone you know you could let me know what authors you think are best suited for twitter and which ones yeah if you have thoughts about uh historical literary or intellectual figures that you would like to have seen use twitter or that you should never use twitter you can tweet them at us at systematic pod on twitter but yeah i'm curious i'm curious what everybody thinks i mean you would think aphorisms and epigrams would really be the the sort of key genre here so you know Nietzsche would probably do okay Heraclitus, yeah. Marshall, the Book yeah. of Proverbs. Yeah, as uh, is it Marco Rubio who's been tweeting out? Just to get political again, is it Marco Rubio who's been tweeting out of the Book of Proverbs for like months and months? I um, I confess I do not follow little Marco. On <laughs> I confess I can't remember who Marco Rubio is. You don't keep up with statewide politics in Florida from Toronto. Weird. I mean, only only if it makes it onto like fail blog or like only only other. when forced to, yeah. Yeah. Or McSweeney's. Um, when it gets on McSweeney's, I know about it. 
There you go. Uh, I well, I was when you mentioned this, I immediately thought of Hegel, um, just because I I like the idea of um, Hegel starting a tweet and uh, first of all using pronouns with no antecedents, so you just don't know what he's you just don't know what like what the nouns are, uh, and then every tweet he runs out of characters but still sends tweet. So that, yeah, every tweet is that thing where it ends mid sentence. Um, yeah, I like that. I like that. That image is fun. So yeah, Hegel would be bad. Hegel would be no good. Because um, because the whole point of Twitter is like, I think right to like distill like an idea down and just like a neat little package. So I feel like Hegel just couldn't tweet. Well, though there's there's th- like tweet threads are a whole thing um, of like here. Let me give you a whole line of thought in a series of tweets that are replies to one another on down, which then you shit like then are shared. And someone says, like, this thread is really good. And you read the first tweet and they're like, am I going to spend the time? Uh, am I going to apply my fractured uh, powers of attention to reading this whole thread? Or am I just going to like it as though I read it? Because it's on a topic that I can, like, virtue signal that I am for or against. Um, or vice signal if you're uh, organized that way. Um, yeah, so you could, I mean, you could have a kind of longer running thing. but. Uh, but yeah, there is a there is a very at the at, there's a kind of minimum demand for for concision. Sure, I mean, so with the threading, Bernie would be great, right? Because you, you, he would know in advance that this is like one of thirty two. That's that's correct. Yeah, and he would he would have a Latin designation for it. However, he's um, he's I don't think he'd be capable of shit posting, no, which that's is. True which is really the key to Twitter. Like you can be earnest, but not consistently. No, you you know, you have to mix in uh, a certain degree of self-indulgent nonsense in order to make it. Thomas Aquinas would be great at Twitter. That was not the name I had in my head. (laughs) Like numbered each thing, like, you know, like, Oh, I see. Like divided, like concise points into categories. And he he could do a a threaded, like, uh, you know, I mean, he can get a little bit like up in people's grill or like. There would be, there would be humorous parentheticals. Yes. I think Mm -hmm. that's right. With Thomas. Mm -hmm. Um, But you need, you need, you need garbage content too. Yep. So Martin Luther then, like Oh, Luther would be the greatest thing to ever happen to Twitter. Luther would be amazing. Uh I feel the, like he gets that, you know, that genre. The flame war, the whole thing. It would be great. Yeah. yeah. Um, plus, you know, just to to keep things nerdy around here, you know, it's it's a Luther has the influence he has because he took advantage of the latest and greatest media. Of, no, right. You know. He's an early adopter. Mm-hmm. So, you know. He'd be on the socials. I think so. Uh, I would. I would totally watch Luther TikToks. <laughs> Plus, I mean. By the way, if somebody out there is is uh, portly and owns <laughs> owns a brown robe, uh, and is down to to make Luther TikToks, I will. I will retweet that all, <laughs> all day, every day. I understand Luther spent a lot of time on the toilet, which <laughs> Wait, also seems to like really lend itself to. From, from everything I can tell about his diet, uh, dude needed some non-absorbable bulk. True. <laughs> That's how you get gout, people. Come on. Um, well, I didn't think I was going to say gout this morning. Here we are. It's good to be back. All right. So, like, who would be... So, who else, like... 
Hey, Hegel will be bad. Yeah. Um, All the contemplatives, I think, would be bad at Twitter. Yeah, th- though I, I do feel like if you followed, if anybody out there follows Marianne Williamson on Twitter, I could, I could see a kind of, uh, I could see a kind of like woo-woo contemplative Twitter thing where you're like, I'm not really sure what that means. Uh, but I make is it, I'm like it's making me feel good about my coffee this morning. Mm-hmm. Um, so I feel like that, that you could make that work. I mean, you know, it depends on the kind of contemplative you are. I I mean, I think one of the the, the most important figures in all of Twitter is Anne Lamont, who is you know kind of a mystic for our time, but also the best garbage poster <laughs> on the internet. That's true. That's true. Yeah. Uh yeah, I'm trying to think about who else would be who else would be good. Um Socrates, like the original reply guy. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So I see you mentioned justice in your tweet. What's justice? <laughs> um what else? Yeah. Plus he could go harder after Thrasymachus because he wouldn't have to get worried about being punched. <laughs> True. Yeah, you're at some remove, huh? Yeah. Um yeah, you would have to worry like um like Paul Tillich would have a lot of followers, but you wouldn't want him sliding into your DMs. No. Um is it too soon for that joke? That not cool. <laughs> Paul Tillich was kind of gross, everybody. Kind of a gross person. I mean, like what early twentieth century, late night like wasn't that'd be an interesting game yeah that's a whole oh. hey, that's next week's frivolity. all right next week's for next week's frivolity who's not uh friend? it sounds like a sad game if we're yeah being frank about it but that's true um yeah we, yeah who in early 20th century philosophy and theology would have to worry about ronan farrow um a lot of people all right well now i'm sad so let's pivot. Mission accomplished. Let's talk Boom. about metaphysics. You know, it always cheers me up. Uh, modes of predication and distinguishing oh, yeah. them. Yeah, brightens my day. So Ryan, this was an idea you had when we were, uh, when we were talking about this episode coming back. Uh, so what, what were you thinking we were going to do today? Well, you know, speaking of the Twitters, I, I, f- I f- frequently see... Uh, attempts at at synergy or at least of some dialectic between um sort of different different uh different old schools that have been revived uh for the social media age um so you know you get like Bagnesian Thomas on Twitter which is wild <laughs> um going going on in support of you know the promotio physica and then you've got various forms of resourcement folks and uh folks given to other forms of uh speculative thought and they often to me seem to talk past one another on the question of divine freedom uh and contingency uh, what makes a contingent thing contingent, a necessary thing necessary, etc. 
And, you know, these are obviously very old um, debates. Um, sometimes the Pope weighs in and says, all y'all shut up. Uh, as, as happened in the De Auxilies. Um, but, you know, I th- think it's worth trying to bring a more Lonergan perspective to bear, at least make it clear what that perspective is, yeah. um, not as a panacea to solve all Twitter arguments, but at, just as a, a way of suggesting that there's another path in sort of broadly to mystic terms for talking about this than uh, droning on about counterfactuals and possible worlds and other kinds of silly uh, <laughs> attempts to, to secure divine freedom without really getting clear about what contingency really is. Yeah. So um, I figured we could do that in a couple of different ways. We could kind of get in the sandbox and talk about it in terms of formal analysis and do some metaphysics, or uh, we could do it in um, a more methodical frame and talk about uh, contingent predication um, and get clear about what that term actually means. So those were, those were some of my, my provocations for the morning. No, that's good. Um... Yeah, you know, and one of the things that inevitably happens when I'm when I'm scrolling through the Twitters um, is that I, I I I stumble upon one of these conversations of people going back and forth, uh, and because I uh, try to limit the amount of time that I devote being on socials uh, to some middling success, I I end up uh, just being like, hey, look, if you don't. If you, like, if you don't have some sense of how contingent or extrinsic predication is controlling the way in which um, these claims are being made about divine agency, like you're just, you're caught in an intractable problem. Like you're just not you're not going to get out of this cul-de-sac. Um, and then I don't explain myself. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, go ahead. No, if we can back up two seconds, like the, the crux of these arguments are basically like, is God free? Yes or no? Well, if we say God's free, like, how the hell does that happen? Is that essentially what the argument is? Yeah, sort of. So, so part of what you get is um, sh- either either you have shared agreement that there is divine freedom, but then, like, how? Um, alternatively, you will sometimes get out of Neoplatonist circles um, a quibble with the claim that God is free that says... Um, in a way that I don't find particularly illuminating, um, but nonetheless is pretty common, is say, well, no, no, no. Properly speaking, God is, uh, God's action is neither necessary nor contingent. God is uh, beyond freedom and necessity. Um, and then if you ask like, what that means, uh, you usually get some kind of appeal to paradox or something, right? Um, paradox well, are just like hardcore, you know, equivocal, what we say by like necessity freedom or necessity or whatever is like meaningless to God. You'll get that, right? You'll get, you'll, you'll get a denial of univocity or analogy and you'll get a, a sort of a kind of equivocity uh, claim. Or what you'll get is, um, a, again, a kind of neoplatonist appeal to uh, divine, uh, divine unity, divine simplicity, um, where the kind, of, the kind of distinctions and dualities needed um, to apply those categories, like sorry, the, the one is the one and uh, any other kinds of like predication about the one um, are no go because they don't like, they don't properly apply. Uh, I think there's another angle on it. Those are the ones that come to mind off the top of my head anyway. Yeah. 
Because in his retirement, John Milbank is on Twitter all the time. True. That's true. Yeah. Um, yeah. This is the part where I confess I actually haven't read enough Milbank to even know what his position would be on this. He would belong more to the the Neoplatonist description that John was just articulating. So it is not uncommon for him to use phrases like um, God is beyond freedom and necessity. Um, and then appeal to paradox when asked what that means. Mm-hmm. Um, which, uh, speaking for myself, that kind of appeal to paradox is, for my money, the statement of a question and not an answer. Right. Um, it's, the, it's the articulation of a, of a problem uh, in need of speculative work. Not, uh, that's not an answer. It's not a solution to, to speculative problems. Um, and if I'm and if I'm feeling really jaunty, I might say, uh, and in fact, to suppose that it is is just rank obscurantism. Uh, but Hey-o. all right. So <laughs> one of the um, the Lonergan's got a great line in I think one of the footnotes in the I think it's in the article versions of Grace and Freedom, not the. Uh, uh, not Grazia Operon's the dissertation. He's got a great footnote where he says, like, look, a lot of the problem with this whole discussion of grace and freedom it has to do with uh, people supposing they, they obviously already know what causation is. Um, and then he spends an aggravatingly long chapter discussing divine operation. Uh, and if you are, like, if you're picking up this book and you're like, oh, yeah, we're going to get into, like, the nitty-gritty of uh, how Thomas thinks about grace, he makes you wait. There's there's some delayed gratification in that book because uh, you he's going to drag you through Thomas's appropriation and uh, augmentation of Aristotle's theory of agency of cause of causality. Um, and at the at the root of it is uh, a distinction that he makes. And uh, the distinction is that um, not all of the accidents are predicated, that, that, that uh, accidents, quote unquote, is not basically isn't a, a genera, um, but that rather there's a, there's a real, there's a sort of more substantive distinction between accidents that are predicated of a substance intrinsically, right, on the basis of something in the thing that you're speaking about and uh, accidents that are predicated extrinsically and uh, counter to maybe spontaneous anticipations or uh, your intuitions. Thomas is going to follow Aristotle and he's going to say that agency to be that being a cause is something that's predicated not on the basis of something in that which is causing on the basis of something extrinsic to it. Uh, and so this is called, appropriately enough, extrinsic predication. Um, and he says that this is, in every instance of, uh, of agency, of causation, this is how it works, is uh, what is the difference that makes a difference between possibly causing, possibly acting, and actually causing, actually acting? Well, it's the reality, the existence of an effect. 
And so the, the agency, the causality is predicated of the cause of the agent on the basis of not some change, some transformation in the agent, in the cause, but on the appearance and the objective scene of an effect. And, um, and so then to say something that, uh, to say that something is an effect of some cause is uh, predicated, uh, being an effect, being a patient is predicated on the basis of in, uh, an intrinsic predication, which is to say that the real dependence of the effect of the caused thing on the agent, on the, ca the causing thing. Um, so does that entail always then like temporality because you have to have an effect as well, or it can be, no. you know, it's just dependence. Um, yeah. The, 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 the ontological dependence is the only thing that is the only thing that really matters. Okay. Um, and the, and the reason this is important for Aristotle is that, um, if you claim that to cause an effect is intrinsically predicated of the agent, then to come to cause something is, a, is going to be a change in causes, in agents. And so then uh, in, his, um, in, the, in his ancient Greek idiom, uh, then every mover is moving, which is to say every, um, every, everything which causes something else to become, to come about, is itself changing. Well, Aristotle, for his, uh, to stop the infinite regress he's worried about with cosmic causality, he needs an unmoved mover, right? Um, or else you're in a situation where nothing is explicable for him causally. You can't, you can't do reduction to causes, to use the medieval idiom, um, uh, because there's, there's, sort of, there's no backstop. And so, um, and so what's, what's really interesting, though, about Aristotle's argument and Thomas's appropriation of it is rather than making an exception for the unmoved mover, right, going, oh, the thing that makes the unmoved mover different is that everything else is uh, moving insofar as it is a mover, right, is changing insofar as it is producing change. Uh, the unmoved mover is the special unique thing that doesn't do that. Ta-da! Um, but no, Aristotle and Thomas both put forward a general theory, a completely general theory of agency um, in which the way that you speak about, speak truly about agents, about causes is through extrinsic uh, predication, extrinsic. Uh, sometimes he'll use, Lonergan will use the, the term extrinsic denomination. Um, and in order to, in order to do that, in order to have a true uh, a, a true statement of extrinsic predication, um, you need uh, an extrinsic denominator. You need something which is. And so you get what Lonergan calls statements that are simultaneously in truth. Or simultaneous in truth, rather. And, uh, and the idea here, right, is that uh, to say that um, I am warmed by the fire and the fire warms me are simultaneous in truth the existence of the uh, the existence of the fire's warmth in me right or um the one, the example that i like better than lonergan uses the fire one but he, he also uh, elsewhere uses i can't remember if this is thomas's or aristotle's example but it's um of hearing a ringing bell and me coming to hear a ringing bell 
doesn't involve any change in the ringing bell, right? The bell's just ringing. It's, you know, it's been struck or whatever, and it's doing its thing. And I come to hear it. And what's, and, and what is it that, uh, undergirds the truth of the claim that, uh, that the ringing of the bell has caused me to hear this sound? Well, it's me hearing the sound. The existence of me hearing it is the thing that makes it true. Um, and so to say that the, the bell has caused me to hear and that I am hearing the ringing bell are simultaneous truth. This will turn out to be important for a, doc, a, a speculative account of creation as well. But maybe I can stop there in case there are like questions or things that weren't clear or addendum that Ryan wants to or Robert wants to add. No, I mean, I, th I think it's just worth going over uh, the basic point over and over again because. Um, it is uh, uh, at one level a fairly straightforward account of causality, um, and and one that you sh you, people should have realized is the case from or just even a reading of Aristotle. But um, boy, it's just one that I see, uh, if not out and out denied, um, misunderstood or overlooked or not adverted to at all just everywhere um and then you're 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 back to a notion of causality that's really just humean um even even if even without human skepticism about causality it's still uh, effectively viewing causes as as the kinds of as a, as a kind of like physical collision it's billiards um, table physics yeah and yeah. uh it's it's a really hard habit to break but it's you're just never going to make any progress on any of the application of the analogy of causation to philosophy and theology if you're stuck in that mode of thinking about causes. No, that's good. So, and, um, and you know, not to, to ride a really tired Lonerganian hobby horse, but um, part of the issue has to do with picture thinking, which is instead of, um, instead of trying to understand the nexes between the terms in a metaphysical account, the much, the much more um, available sort of, uh, sort of uh, existentially available mode of engaging with the material is to engage with it imaginatively. And so when you have a kind of Thomist account talking about the communication of act from the agent to the patient, well, one of the things you get in the commentary tradition and then and still sort of spontaneously in the contemporary scene is a, a, a thinking of the communication of act from the agent to the patient as you've got this uh, you've got this blob that is the agent that has as a, as a quality uh, act. And you've got a patient over here, uh, which is another blob of 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 entitative uh, stuff. Right. And what does it mean for the for the agent to communicate acts to the patient? Well, they bump into it. They come into physical contact with each other and some act stuff oozes out of the agent <laughs> and flows, right? Influences the patient. And so now act has moved from the agent's patient, right? Uh, in this imagistic way. And so you have to explain, well, yeah, you know, how does that go and where does it go? And um I was <laughs> set a paper at uh, CTSA a couple of years ago, and somebody was talking about um, the uh, 
remember which terminology they were using, but acquired versus infused virtues, I think. And someone said, well, what, what, when someone gets the infused virtues, where do the acquired virtues go? <laughs> um, which is a, Two which is objects a, can't occupy the same space at the same time, John. Yeah, come on. You've read Descartes. Um, and so this imagistic, this, this sort of our predisposition to thinking in terms of spatially extended imaginary um, relations, spatiotemporal relations, like it, it's, it's the first thing that comes to us. It, it takes some work to bracket that enough to, to think just in terms of the, the nexes of terms and their intelligible relations with each other. Um, yeah. And so, yeah. So the question is like, well, if the infused virtues are crowding, you know, are, are, are entering this space, then they must be crowding out the acquired virtues. So where do they go? Um, and I had so wished the presenter had said, I don't know, to the bar. Um, <laughs> what do you do when you're off duty? You know, home to watch Netflix. We kind of think of it like, like conservation of energy, right? So you've got, yeah. you've got potential energy and then you've got kinetic energy and like we're full of potential. Then like the, the agent that causes uses kinetic energy, which then turns the patient potential energy into kinetic right and so right. and it can never be both at the same time right yeah. um and I think we tend to think of it i think in like very simplistic like newtonian physics right um, and and uh and you know seventh grade science class newtonian physics at that um so so in any case so that's the that's the physics and metaphysics piece um so then where, how does this help us with the, the pro, this problem of divine freedom? Well, it doesn't directly, actually, because it's a, it's a theory of agency, not a theory of freedom. Uh, there, and there's all kinds of agents that don't have freedom. And so, um, so you sort of have to like start with, um, actually, you know what? Let me stop and go back. I'm going to stop and go back because I want to make a point uh, that uh, I was I was making jokes about infused and acquired virtues and I forgot. So let me go back a little bit. Um, one of the other issues, though, is that because of the spontaneous tendency to think of real stuff as being stuff like spatially extended, temporally enduring, um, imagined units of stuff, as that's what's real. Uh, because of that spontaneous tendency, all of this stuff about modes of predication, extrinsic um, predication, extrinsic denomination, is like, yeah, yeah, but that's all just grammar about how you talk about things. Um, we're trying to do metaphysics and learn about the being of things. And so how does it, how does it help me to, to, to have done this grammar of, of agency, of, of causality? Um, when what I really want is, yeah, but what's the being of it? Um, and for this, like, this is what Lonergan's on about when he talks about intellectual conversion is, uh, there has to be a kind of trans transformation of your, your anticipation, your heuristic, or when you're speaking of being in a, in a scholarly metaphysical, philosophical, or theological register, um, are you talking about stuff? that's out there now or are you talking about um the object of of correct understanding which is to say of of true affirmation 
And, um, and so part, one of the things, you know, that Lonergan really leans on is, um, the reason it's important that, uh, statements made through extrinsic predication are the, are the, or, or rather that extrinsic predication is the ground of statements that are simultaneous in truth is that, um, like true statements are about what is, um, that, that true statements have, uh, ontological purchase. And so if you want to change registers to talk about God, right. To say that God acts or God causes, um, well, the truth of that statement that to say that, let's say to say that God causes the universe to be at all, right. The basic statement of, of the doctrine of creation, um, to say that God to say that God causes the universe to be at all. Um, well, if, if that's a statement about causation, about divine agency, then it's a statement may, if this general theory of agency is correct, um, and at least into a lot of problems if it's not. So we've got maybe some good reasons to at least operate as though it were true. Um, then what's the ground of the truth of that statement? The ground of the truth of that statement is, uh, is there a world that depends on God's agency to exist? Right. The exist, it's the existence of the extrinsic denominator um, that, that funds, that, that founds the claim that God has acted, that God has caused the world. Um, now, this has the nice, for monotheists, right, for quote-unquote classical theism, this has the, the nice added benefit of um, you can claim that God created the universe without having to claim that God changed. Because um, it doesn't, because not all movers are moving. Um, but that's, you know, that's got the, the, the that has the, uh, the, the relative thinness of the intellectual pattern of experience to make that claim, right? Um, to say, it is true to say that the universe exists uh, in dependence on God's agency. And so it is true to say that God causes the universe to exist. And to say, um, you know, to say that, that, that that has ontological purchase that's a metaphysical claim and not just a grammatical one um because it's based on true like true predication correct understanding um it doesn't have the same oomph as a dramatic account of um of the same thing maybe that's worth stopping there if you guys have questions or comments yeah i mean this this is a uh even among thomas right this is a this is a big problem um so the whole the the criticism of so so called grammatical Thomism, um, which gets associated with folks like Herbert McCabe and and David Burrell, um, you know, I, I think especially in Burrell's case, what's what's operating behind his notion of predication and of speculative grammar is not, I mean, he's he I, I think in order to like be understood at least in part. It adopts a kind of Wittgensteinian um, idiom, but the real intellectual superstructure for his account is is Lonergan, and and so the 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 isomorphism of knowing and known is is programmatic and foundational to what he even means by speculative grammar, um, and so I I think if you until you sort of have that kind of structural insight into um, 
to what it really, what, what you're really claiming when you say that something is true, that you're not just ar- arranging words in a particular way for utility, um, but you are, you are making a claim about what is, um, and that those two modes of, of affirmation and of speaking and of predicating are not um, bracketed off one from the other. Um, you're really going to have little luck um, navigating this theory of causation because it's a theory that's only really thinkable in terms of um, true affirmation. So, so uh, in uh, Naturapura, Stephen A. Long uh, repeatedly, uh, he kind of buries it in footnotes a couple times, but he, but he says it over and over again, like to, to know God as the creator of the universe, as the cause of the world that exists. He says, is, he says it's accidentally predicated of God, um, which is, uh, I guess, like broadly true. Um, but the problem is, is he then uses this to say, um, and because God is, quote unquote, infinitely more than that, we don't, a- this, we don't actually know anything about God by saying this. Well, like, whoa, slow down. Yeah. <laughs> like, that's a bit of wanting to have your cake and eat it, too, isn't it? Well, that's his favorite mode of argument. Um, like, at some point, like, you either say we can't know things about God or we can. Like, either God is revealed. And, like, yes, is there always, like, out there some possibility that God has, like, <laughs> inaccurately, uh, uh, like, revealed himself to us? Like, I guess. But at some point. I mean, that's kind of an, I would think, an epistemic divide you can't make. But otherwise, like, you kind of have to decide to operate on the yes or the no. Because if you keep, like, if you want to say, like, all these things about God, then finish it off with, yeah, but could just be anything else. And, I mean, just. Yeah, I mean, the issue. Like, God could actually be a cupcake. I mean. (laughs) Well, the issue with Long is, is is a little bit different than, than that move. You know, part of, part of. Long's issue is um, that he wants to keep this like really hard break. Um, he he's trying to argue against a natural desire for God, um, and so desiring to know what the cause of the world is isn't really a desire for God because that that title only accidentally names God. Um, and uh, well, then is it like well, is it true or isn't it, Steve? Um, and if it's true, right, if it's true and it's, and it's an accident, then it's like either extrinsic predication. And so you have two terms, simultaneous and truth, like Lonergan says, or you have an intrinsically predicated accidental statement about God, which means then you're not talking about God anymore. Right. You're not a monotheist anymore. Um, so this is where I think, I think, um, Folks more on the Neoplatonist side, uh, their spider sense starts tingling. Yeah. Uh, rightfully so, because um, this is bad. Because <laughs> uh, then, then it seems that, um, that, that now you don't even have a way of, of um, talking about divine simplicity or divine infinity anymore. And so, um, all, all you're left with is uh, 
uh, a, an entity who is um, big, old, and strong. Um, and so the tendency then is to double down on the the opposite approach, which is which is to um, baptize all contingency into uh, the 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 kind of eternal unicity of the one. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that solves most of the problems that we've that we've just identified. Um, right. But it creates a few new ones. Um, Got which, th- so, which is to which is just to say to put a uh, finer point on right to say to say that the the act of creating is um, the act of creating and, and you get a little bit of an elision here right that the act of creating because it's a divine act and so it has to be eternal therefore has to be necessary or beyond necessity and contingency or whatever right um, but that the act of creating itself can't be uh, a contingent act. Right. Um, because precisely for the, the worry, right? Because the worry is that the alternative claim is, well, now you've just introduced contingency into God, right? God has that now you've, you are, you're attributing an act to God that is contingent. And so because of the simplicity of God, you've got to have, uh, you've got, you've therefore sundered divine simplicity and maybe even divine eternality, though that's a more complicated thing, but. So you can, you can take, um, you can take the tact that some, at least self-styled style Thomas take, whether I don't know that there's anything particularly Thomist about it, but, and you can, you can say, well, we, we can still talk about um, divine, e- even if all of this is necessary, simply as a function of, of the infinity of divine act, we can still talk about divine freedom in some intelligible way if we posit um, possible worlds that in that in um bringing this particular order into existence um god doesn't bring any any other possible order into existence and therefore even if this order is simply a prolongation of the eternal act of divine being um god is still free insofar as this world is actual and all other worlds are possible and and this is interesting to me because um, I've gotten into some some sort of trouble discussing this topic with people because I, I take a little bit of a, a a subtle position on this, which is um, uh, are there uh, quote unquote, are, are there possible worlds? Definitely, um, because like can you can you conceive of different cosmic orders in your mind, human being? Yes. And in your conceiving of them, are they, is it rooted in some understanding? Yes. Well, all intelligibility is known by God because God is the ontological guarantor of the existence of every intelligibility. So does God know, does God know possible world? Certainly. Um, also, could God, have, could God have made these other possible worlds? Yes, definitely. Because remember that causation is... Uh, predicated on the basis of the extrinsic denominator. So are these other possible worlds possible? Yes. So could they have existed? Yes. And how would they exist? Well, everything that is receives its existence from God. So could God have made these other worlds? Yes. So I'm, I, can, I affirm all of that. And where I, get off the, where I get off the train is, and that's the thing 
that accounts for divine liberty. Right? <laughs> yeah. Um, that's the problem. The problem is thinking that all the affirmation of all those claims is the thing that makes God free. And you've got two issues there. One issue is now you've got creatures conditioning the divine being or possible creatures conditioning the divine being. Um, And on top of that, they don't exist. They haven't been made to be. And so you have non-being, you have something that is not conditioning the divine being. Well, now we're not monotheists anymore. And it and it still is a, a kind of reduction of freedom to choice, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, unless and, unless those other possible worlds actually do exist. I mean, I'm not. And they're really not possible sure. worlds; they're all, actual all, worlds. Oh, that's true. That's true. <laughs> all, all actual <laughs> like, worlds are right, also yeah. possible worlds. Well, yeah, but like my point is, I mean, how do you prove that there aren't other actual worlds? I'm not really. You sure. don't have to. <laughs> like and, you don't have that that uh, like that. That's the whole point, though, right? is yeah. once you make the affirmation that God is the source of everything that exists, um, that isn't itself God, um, then like, maybe, but that's, a, that's like an empirical question or something. That's a factual question. Um, and and you, frankly, you, it doesn't really matter, right? Like, as you were just saying. So whether or not God is like, to whether or not God is the creator, no, because God is the, co- right? God is the maker of all things, visible and invisible. And so like anything that exists, God causes it to be. Um, and anything that's possible, God knows, including things that exist and things that don't exist. Um, so. so the thing, the thing that, uh, Aquinas and Maimonides and Al-Ghazali and Ibn Sina and all the other great philosophers of this period are trying to figure out is what does it mean to philosophically say not just that um, the world is created or that some principle created it, but that that principle did so freely, right? Not just that the unmoved mover moves, but that the unmoved mover is free. Um, In which freedom there is actually doing theological work, but um, has to be rendered philosophically. So if we're not going to do it in terms of um, uh, kind of possible world hypotheses, what's our other option, right? Because it it would seem to me that um, you're going to spontaneously move in one of two directions. You're either going to go with with possible world hypotheses or you're just going to um, just do a kind of more straightforward Neoplatonic take. Um, so what's what's a kind of uh, third way here, John? Well, the part of me actually wants to <laughs> wants to make this a two parter and put this off, um, because the 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 actual accounting of um, divine liberty um, is at least the way that in, in the sort of Thomas and then Lonerganians for broad, uh, Broadway doing it is um, it's done analogically. Um, and it's done analogically from an analysis, from an analysis of, um, of human freedom. Mm-hmm. And so you kind of have to, 
to, to get an account of the way Thomas is going to solve the problem, the way in which Lonergan retrieves Thomas's solution to the problem, um, and, and Burrell's own sort of reconstruction of the historical development of the solution, you sort of have to treat divine, human, divine and human freedom together. Um, if you're going to do it metaphysically in this way. Okay, but how do you, like, how do you analogically move from beings that are inherently contingent to a being that, what you're trying to, like, you're basically trying to avoid contingency in God, right? Like, it seems to me that, I mean, methodologically, you have quite a problem moving, even um, analogically, like, from one of those freedoms to the other, because the type isn't the type of predication going to be completely different like i'm not really i, yeah. I, I just don't really see how how you get over that methodological so, you're right no good so this is exactly the question and and the and so i want to take it all the way back to where i started which is thomas uh thomas retrieves and and augments a uh, a completely general theory of agency and it's a completely general theory of agency in which agency is predicated. And this includes, so let's, so rather than talking about freedom per se, let's talk about freedom insofar as it is a modality of agency. The account of freedom, or the account of agency rather, is one in which calling something an agent, calling something a cause, is done through extrinsic denomination, extrinsic predication, or sometimes it's called, uh, Lonergan will call it contingent predication. And, um, and this is done on the basis of the extrinsic denominator. And so, um, the act by which God acts to cause contingent things is the necessary act of God's own existence. Um, but the causing is predicated on the basis of the existence of the effect. And the effect definitionally exists contingently. Right? It depends on something else for its act. Um, and so to say God creates. And God creates eternally, and the act by and the the act by which God creates is necessary because it's God owns God's own act. But that the but sort of if you shift the accent right, but that cre- creation qua creation, not qua act, is is contingent. Well, it's contingent because its effect is contingent, and the agency is predicated on the basis of the existence of the effect. Um, and so. Now, now, another objection is, well, okay, time out. Now you've got this, you've got this true predication of a contingent, um, uh, a contingent cause, causing in God, but God's eternal. So how do you square those? Um, and Lonergan's answer to this is, well, look, when you, uh, when you ask and answer a, a question in this mode, um, you're, not, uh, you're not asking about... Well, actually, this, the answer is much simpler, which is he just says, time, uh, time is contained in being. Uh, and so if what, like, and so if the act of creation is the thing that causes time, then there's no problem for the act itself to be eternal, because there's no time yet in which for the act to be logically prior to the creation. Um, so that, like, those problems, like, obviously are tricky because you have to keep three different conceptual plates spinning at once. Um, but it all boils down just to like, for the sake of people like driving and trying to follow the thing I just said, it all boils down to the complete generality of the account of agency and that, um, 
that the predication of agency of causality is done on the basis of the existence of the effect. It's based on the basis of the extrinsic denominator um, and not some intrinsic thing about the cause, about the agent. And so to say that God, let's start here, that, that creation exists contingently, that God creates uh, creation contingently is not to say something intrinsic about God, but rather to say something about that which God causes to be. Um, but again, right. if you th- we, we can, we can, uh, we can put a pin in there and then come back to the Liberty question next time. Yeah. Cause like, cause, cause then you get into like Thomas's distinct distinctions between like freedom of exercise and the freedom of specification yep. and the possible world stuff comes back in and you have to talk about like rationality and stuff. Like there's just a lot of pieces um, to that part. I'll do a little reading this week if I can find some time um, and we'll get into divine and human freedom next week. Cool. So, yeah. Um, well, right on. Uh, so, hey, everybody. Uh, I'm really glad that we're back recording regularly again. It's good to be in your earbuds. Um, hi, hi, India Rose. Um, we can be found by email at systematicallypodcast at gmail.com. Or is that right? I think that's probably right. It's been so long, y'all. I am like fully rusty at this now. Yes, systematicallypodcast at gmail.com. You can find us on Twitter at systematicpod. You can uh, help support us through Patreon, patreon.com slash systematically. Um, thank you for those of you who are already doing that. We just can't express our gratitude enough. And uh, our music, as always, intro and outro, is track 14 off of Ghost 2 by Nine Inch Nails. And... Um, I think that's all the things. I didn't even make like show notes this week. It's embarrassing. I should have been prepared, but I'm a mess. <laughs> um, anyway, thanks for listening. Go out there and be intelligent. <laughs>